Well, in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 7, we read that King David went in and sat before the Lord, and then he prayed. And he prayed one of the richest, most power-packed, God-centered, instructive prayers that anyone has ever prayed. And we want to learn from that prayer today. We want to be shaped by it. We want to better understand the God of it. But before we do that, we can't lose sight of what it was that moved David to go in and sit before the Lord with such awe-struck silence and then praise. It was, it was God's word. It was God's word through the prophet Nathan in which God gave promises to David and to his offspring and really for the whole world. It's that that moved David to marvel and praise God and pray as he did. That's what we studied last week together in the first half of 2 Samuel 7, what's sometimes called the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. I won't re-preach last Sunday's sermon, and all God's people said amen, but, but we should survey it again. We should remind ourselves of it, and, and of course, for guests here who may not have been with us next week, we should always have them in mind. We read it already, and we saw that David had a reasonable plan to make a permanent dwelling for God's presence, as it were not a tent like he had been traveling in since the days of the book of Exodus, but a, a temple. But God redirected that plan and gave David better promises than anything that had come before. God said, you would make me a house? That is a temple? But then God flips it and said, instead I will make you a house, but not a physical building, a lineage, a dynasty, an offspring to come. And it will last forever and ever. It keeps getting repeated. Forever this will go on. It's an everlasting throne that will come from King David. God says that this kingdom will be established before him forever and ever. God says that you will be my son and your sons will be my sons and I will be the father and my covenant love will not depart from you or your sons. And in all this, God was saying that David's name would be great to the ends of the earth. As we saw last week, these are bigger promises than any before for God's people, but they weren't completely new promises at all. They spring from and flow out of those promises that God first gave to Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis, that from him would come a great name, a great people, a great nation, kings of the earth would come from him. God would give them land and give them rest from their enemies. And, and in you, God said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, David begins his prayer in 2 Samuel 7 by addressing God, O Lord God, verse 18, Adonai Yahweh. Seven times in this prayer, he addresses God as O Lord God. That's significant. It's significant because it's not very common in the Old Testament to be on the lips of God's saints. And one of those rare occasions is with Abraham. Genesis 15, God addresses, Abraham addresses God after the promises were delivered to him as, O oh Lord, God. 
So David seems to know that this is a like moment in God's redemptive plan. David is standing on the shoulders of Abraham and seeing further than Abraham ever could have. David certainly knew of passages like Genesis 49, that it's from the line of Judah, that there'd be a ruler to come who would receive honor and get the obedience from the nations and his scepter, we're told there. It it will not depart. Eternal, global. This is scattered everywhere. Like in Numbers 24, when Balaam, the occasionally bad prophet, here he rightly, though subtly, and powerfully speaks of the king to come and says, Numbers 24, verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. And get this, Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. You see that? One's coming. And even before there was an Israelite king, Hannah, in 1 Samuel 2, little old Hannah, she got this ball rolling for us so well. She talked about the king to come. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She was talking about a king to come like it was on the horizon, and indeed it was. You could imagine Hannah almost paraphrasing Balaam, saying something like, I see him, but not quite yet. I I behold him, he's almost here. And so 2 Samuel 7 is telling us that David is the one, he is here. All the promises are funneling in right here. Saul was technically the first king, but he was the people's king. And really, he was God's judgment upon the nation. But David is God's man. He's the anointed. He's the man of God's own choosing. He's a better king. I suggested last week that the stories and promises of the Bible are something like streams which meet together and form into rivers, and those rivers flow and grow and move along Until they come to the ocean of Jesus, the better king of better kings, the final king. He alone is the final son of David, as we saw last week. He's the eternal king, the ultimate son of God. He alone brings God's true and final kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's how those grand promises The eternal promises, the global promises of 2 Samuel 7 get fulfilled in one who comes and is himself eternal. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is what the angel announced to young Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, Luke 1. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Or as the prophet Micah foretold. And as Matthew records happening. Where God said that it's from Bethlehem shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He was born in David's city as a son of David, and yet he had no beginning. He is eternal. This is the theme on which our Bible ends. 
with Jesus' own words in Revelation 22, that he is the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So that's where 2 Samuel 7 is going and pointing ahead to. And King David, that day in 2 Samuel 7, a thousand years before Jesus, he, he saw it. He saw something of it. He saw further than anyone before. He couldn't see everything that Christians know today. He didn't know everything the New Testament teaches, of course. But David was taken up to a mountain of sorts to see God's plan for the nations, for the world, for his people, about God's kingdom reigning forever and ever and ever. And how did he respond to all these grand promises? Well, that's the question for today as we meditate upon the second half of 2 Samuel 7. And David's prayer of praise in the second half of 2 Samuel 7 has itself two halves to it, if you can keep this straight. Second half of 2 Samuel 7 has two halves to it, and if you want a real simple outline, it's praise and petition. More thoroughly, though, let me suggest this, that in the first half of David's prayer here, we find three confounded questions. Three confounded questions. They're not so much confounding questions, but they come from a man who is confounded He's confounded by the superabounding grace of God, and he asks three questions, sort of like rhetorical questions. The first is, who am I? Not who am I, like he has some sort of identity crisis, but who am I, oh Lord God? It's rhetorical. Why me? All this grand, glorious grace landing here on me? You see in verse 18 again, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Remember, God had just told David through the prophet Nathan, back up in verse 8, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went. And then God went on to tell David what he would do in the future. And like so many of God's covenants, you see this repetition in what God promises David. I will, he says, I will do it, I will do it. This shall happen, it will happen, I will do it, I will do it. He initiates, he sustains, it's his plan, he's operating it, he's at the controls all this has the earmarks of what we call God's sovereign election. God's sovereign election. That's the New Testament term for God choosing, God initiating, God redeeming, God going to and pulling from. And David knew about that well before the Apostle Paul ever wrote about it. David did not come in from the sheep pasture that day in 1 Samuel 16 looking for an anointing to be king someday. He was not chosen to be king because he was the most kingly in the land or even in his family. He was the youngest, likely the littlest, and he was the last born. Who was his house? I mean, who is Jesse except that he later becomes 
David's dad. That's what he's famous for. But who is Jesse? And who is his family dwelling there in little old Bethlehem as sheep herders? God is going to make from a sheep herding family a royal family, the royal family, the royal dynasty? Yeah, it wasn't based on David's worth or heritage. You ask David, why you, David? And he would say, that's what I said, why me? There's no human explanation for it. And you might say, yeah, but Ryan, I mean, after all, David was a man after God's own heart, and maybe that's why God sought him and used him and called him and elected him. Yes, but that phrase, a man after God's own heart, that may not mean what you think it means, to paraphrase Inigo Montoya. It means of God's own heart. It can mean from God's own heart or after God's own heart. If David is a man of God's own heart, that means something like he is a man of God's own choosing. And if David was a man after God's own heart, then he was first a man of God's own heart and God's own initiative. It's just like Abraham Maybe you can see it better, more obviously, in the case of Abraham, where in Genesis 12, God came to Ur of the Chaldees and spoke to him. And there's no indication that he was worshiping Yahweh God back then. He's in Ur of the Chaldees. He's a probably typical Chaldean pagan worshiper. He wasn't praying for God to show up and start a nation through him. God just showed up. God came, God came calling. Who is Abraham that God should call him? Who is David that God would use him? Who are you that God would save you? Who am I? 1 Corinthians 1 helps us with this in the New Testament, where Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Why? Why did he do it that way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Now we'll come back to this theme later on because David keeps coming back to it throughout his prayer. But but notice as we move along, That David doesn't just marvel at God's initiative, but God's ongoing care, what we call God's providence. He says, who am I that you have brought me thus far? And how far it's been since that first anointing in 1 Samuel 16. Some 10 years plus since that time. And what amazing providence there has been in the life of David. What what amazing provision and, and protection that God has shown. His life is constantly in the balance, it seems. He's always on the run. There's no food. There's no weapon. He's the ace of spades in the most wanted deck for King Saul. Battle after battle with Philistines and, and, and others. And, and he's winning and, and God's with them. And, God's protecting him. And on and on we could go about David and how the Lord had led him thus far. And and so could you go on and on about how the Lord has brought you thus far. As John Newton taught us to sing, 
It's through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And yet David says, this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, all this, all that's come before, all his provision and protection and promises. It's a small thing, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. He looks back and then he looks ahead. And he says, this is instruction for mankind. These new promises God had given, or renewed promises, or enlivened promises of old that he pinned to David. David says it's instruction for mankind. As I mentioned last week, some have argued that you could translate it and interpret that phrase, not instruction for mankind, but the charter for humanity, the Magna Carta of the whole world. And that's just what, pro- what God promised to Abraham, that in your seed all the nations would be blessed. It's what Genesis 49 promised, about a ruler of the nations to come. And somehow David took God's promises spoken to him that evening and piece them together with the ones of old, not to make a full picture that we know, but a more complete one than any one before. And once again, this only makes sense if Jesus is the true and final son of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the one who came not just to redeem a nation, but humanity. A people from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. A multitude which no man can number. That's who he came to save. That's what he's commissioned us to do. It is with all authority in heaven and on earth that he sent his disciples out to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. David, of course, again, didn't know all of what was to come, but he knew That God had a plan through him for the nations, for humanity. And he said, who am I? The second question he asks is, what can I say? Verse 20, what more can David say to you? Isn't it fascinating that David, the great psalmist David, was now relatively speechless. He doesn't know what to say. David's never out of words. I mean, he just, he, psalms are falling out of his pockets, right? And this guy, he's speechless. And he's actually speaking about his speechlessness, which is a great way to praise God, isn't it? To tell him you don't know what to say and to tell him you don't know what to say, not because you can't think of anything, because nothing seems to be worthy of it. I mean, David knows that God is great, and so he's greatly to be praised, as David writes elsewhere many times over. But David feels the inadequacy of human words to match the greatness of God with great praise. And so he simply recounts what God has already promised to David and summarizes who God is, You see promises in verse 21. You see David summarizing God's character in verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
Once again, this is what Hannah prayed at the beginning of the story. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, she said, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. What more can you say? I wonder when the last time is, Christian, when's the last time that you were relatively speechless before the Lord? I confess that more often than not, I'm speechless because I don't know what to say next or because I got distracted in prayer or I thought it was good enough or I'm not doing so well at it this morning. Time to move on to something else. Oh, for more times when the Lord's promises and his character so grip us that we are prayerfully speechless, that we're awestruck, that we are breathless before him, that we're staggering at the promises that he's given to us, that we're reeling at his ways, that we're asking rhetorical questions of him, and we're belaboring to express to him even in the inadequacies of our words. I wonder, perhaps we don't pray more or better than we do because we've not first pondered. I mean, this, this sort of flows out of the mouth of David, it seems, easily, even though he has to talk about his speechlessness. It flows out of him, I think, because, in large part because he was marveling, and he was marveling because he was pondering, and he pondered because he had heard. He pondered what he heard until he marveled at it, and he sat dumbfounded before the Lord, and he spoke. Marveling produces speech, or at times silence, but a holy kind of silence. But it begins with what God has said, with who he is, with what he's done, with what he has promised. Praise begins by standing upon or sitting under, meditating on all that we have heard with our ears or all that we have read with our eyes. It begins with his word. But it's not reading the Bible alone that produces this kind of passionate praise. We have to ponder we have to marvel, we have to get it, we have to fight against yawning about familiar words, familiar words of grand promises. David says, what can I say? Thirdly, he asks, who is like your people? Verse 23, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things? And then David looks at that pivotal moment in God's plan when God rescued his many people from Egypt. They were now many in number as Exodus begins, but they were in slavery, in bondage in Egypt, and God led them out. He performed great and glorious wonders and acts, like the plagues, like parting the Red Sea, like God feeding his people in the wilderness, giving them bread from heaven water from a rock. And why did God do that? Well, verse 24, you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. Now this is marriage language in ancient Near East. 
that God picks up on and borrows and uses, applying it to his relationship with his people. It was common in ancient Near East to talk about my people becoming your people, my gods, your gods. You hear it in Ruth. But God says in Exodus 6, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's the most common covenant language that God uses in all the Bible, no matter what covenant we're talking about. David asks, who is like your people? And essentially he answers, they are God's people. They are his possession. They are a redeemed people. They are freed from Egypt, but restored the Lord. Redemption always has both sides of the coin. There's a freeing from and a freeing to with redemption. It's not just that God frees us from sin in New Testament redemption, but he, he frees us to himself and we're bought with a price and we're not our own. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies. You might ask not just why did he do it, but why them? Why that nation? Why Israel? And that's just like the question of why Abraham, why David, why you, why me? In fact, it's explicit in Deuteronomy 7. Why Israel? God says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's because he set his love on you. Or as David puts it in verse 21, it's according to your own heart that you have done this and that. You've promised these things and accomplished these things according to your own heart or will. It's according to God's will. That's the basis for mercy. That's his reason for covenant love. And it's the same in the New Testament. It's mysterious. It's unmerited favor. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Well, I don't know. It's according to the purpose of his will. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's according to the riches of his grace. It's to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Christian, I wonder, have you gotten used to your election? Have you gotten familiar with this doctrine enough that it's just a doctrine? Maybe it was a, a theological wrestling match, you and the Bible and God. And maybe at some point you came to see that this is good and glorious and, and you talked about it a lot. You were awe-stricken. You said, who am I? And you said to God, what can I say to you in light of this special love that I simply cannot ever earn and have not deserved? I wonder if it's still personal to you. If you still feel the helplessness you would have outside of God's sovereign, intervening, initiating love and election. And I'm sure there are many in this room that have never come to wrestle with that idea. Maybe you've never seen your need for God mysteriously and gloriously invading your life for good and for eternity. 
And all I can say to you, if you've never wrestled with that and never come to see that it's good, you're missing out. You're missing out. Far from being a hard pill to swallow, when it's understood rightly, this is the choicest of God's meats for us. Well, I'm sure that can raise some questions in your mind, questions we can't answer today because of the nature of what we're studying, but it's here nonetheless, even without clarification and qualification. David says, who is like your people? They're a redeemed people, a chosen people, God's people, a people for his name. On the one hand, who is like his people? You can be, that can be answered with, they're a bunch of nobodies, and they better never forget it. On the other hand, who is like his people? By God's grace, God's people are privileged people. They are heavenly people. They are holy people. They are spectacularly bought. They are his bride. They are sons and daughters, citizens of the kingdom. They are a chosen race, Peter says. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who is like his people? They have nothing in themselves to commend, but by God's favor and his design and because of grace and through the cross, they are precious and precious in his sight. So praise God for what he has said. Praise God for what he's done. Praise God for who he is. Look back to the stories of old in your Bible. Never tire for them, from them. David sure didn't. No psalmist did. The New Testament sure didn't. We need, to, we need to never say, yeah, I heard that story before. I read that passage before. I've heard a sermon on that one before. As if... We're all used to it and filled up on it and completely satisfied by it. And we've learned everything we can from God's infinite word. Indeed, we haven't. So we keep remembering all that we have heard with our ears and we keep pondering all that he's done for us and how he has brought us thus far. We say with David in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Say with David, who am I? What more can I say? And who is like your people, O God? In the second half of David's prayer now, we'll more quickly go through these. We see three courageous requests, three courageous requests. And we see that courage in verse 27, this being the key holding this section together, I think, where David says, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. He found courage to pray like he did. Courage in God's name, courage in God's ways, his character, courage in God's power, courage in God's plan, his history, courage in God's word, courage in the promises. And he prayed a courageous prayer. Let me ask, does it look courageous to you? You see, first, he, he prays this. Do what you promised. 
God, do what you promise. Does that look courageous to you? That's what he says in verse 25. Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Is that courageous? Or maybe you'd say, who cares if it's courageous? Why pray for something that God has already promised? The answer to that can be many, but here are a couple things. We pray for what God has promised because, in general, God has chosen to be glorified in the asking and answering process. He has put in his plan this thing called prayer where he wants us to ask and he wants to answer, of course, according to his will, but he is glorified in the asking and answering process. And we can also say, we must always remember this, that prayer is not getting God to align himself with our wills, but prayer is getting ourselves under his will. Prayer is aligning ourselves under him. And that's why David prays for what God has already promised. He wants God to do what God wants to do. He wants God to do what God wants to do more than what David had wanted to do. He wanted to build a house for God. And God said, nope, not you, not yet. He said, I'm going to do for you. And you're going to sit. And David did. David essentially reminds God what God has just said. That's sort of a courageous thing to remind God of what he has said. Do you have a spot in your theology, your prayer theology, for reminding God for what he said? Not because he's forgetful, that would be bad. Not reminding God of what he said in some sort of accusatory way. Now God, you said, now how about it? No, we remind God of what he has said already in the sense that we are before him, rehearsing his promises, celebrating those promises with him even before they come to pass. We're reminding ourselves of the promises and we're cheering on those promises before the face of the Lord. And we're eagerly expecting them even though we don't know the timing or the exact way in which he'll fulfill them. Here are a couple of quotes from praying saints that might help. Like John Bunyan, who said, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God hath promised or according to the word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Or E.M. Bounds, who later wrote many books on prayer, he said this, Faith deals with God and is conscious of God. It deals with the Lord Jesus Christ and sees him as Savior. It deals with God's word. It lays hold of the truth. It deals with the Spirit of God and is energized and inspired by its holy fire. God is the object of faith, for faith rests its whole weight on his word. Faith in prayer, is not an aimless act of the soul, but a looking to God and resting upon his promises. Faith is not just believing anything. It is believing God, resting in him, and trusting his word. That's why David prayed, do it, Lord. Do it. 
Secondly, the second courageous request is magnify your name. Verse 26 and 27 He says in verse 26, your name will be magnified forever. Now, technically, that's not a request, but it deserves its own attention. It's it's an extension of the first request, and really, in some ways, it is its own request. You see, David prayed that God would do what he said, essentially, so that God's name would be magnified forever. To be magnified means to be exalted, lift up, loud, proclaimed, known, that God would be famous, that his name would be written large in this world. That's what David was praying. And of course, that's been the plan all along. That's all over the Bible. If you've never done a study like this, I'd encourage you just to to search a Bible electronically for my name, your name, your glory, my glory. See what God's up to. See what the heartbeat of God is all about. If you don't know how to search a Bible like that, then just read any book by John Piper and you'll see all the relevant verses there. God said that David's name would be great. But David was humbled by this and he simply said of himself, who am I? And what more can I say? But but of God, he said, may his name be magnified. What do you want God to do for you? What do you ask him for? When you ask him for something, what is the end goal of that request? Or we could put it this way. What do your so that's tell you about your prayer life and your desires and aims in this world? So that. So we pray a request. And we ask God would do this so that Fill in the blank. What's after so that in your prayers? Father, I pray you'd heal me of this so that I'd be healed. There's no so that necessary. (laughs) That's obvious. I don't, but where is the so that? And what is it? What comes after? What are our true aims, our final goals? What is the end of any request that we make? And we should note that we can pray for things that the Lord has not promised in his word. We're allowed to do that. We can ask anything, we're told. We can pray for the medical test to come back okay. We can pray for a child to be born. We can pray for an adoption to work out. We can pray for healing in our bodies. But a few things should be kept in mind as we piece together a theology of prayer. We have to be conscious about the difference between what God has promised in his word for his plan for us and what he hasn't promised yet. What we know and what we don't know. When we pray for what God hasn't explicitly promised in his word, we pray, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. We want him to trump our requests with better answers. We can and we must pray for what God has promised already. We can pray for what God has promised with a different kind of courage and confidence than we can pray for those things that we don't know whether he will say yes to. We should emphasize those things that he has already promised in our prayers. And we should be thoughtful about our so that's with his name being magnified, being the greatest so that there is.
David had in mind that highest end. And so he prayed and he prayed God's promises back to God so that God's word would be confirmed, so that God's name would be magnified, and so that God's people would be blessed. Thirdly, he requests this, bless your people. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. Bless me, bless my house, bless all those that come after me. And what kind of blessing did he have in mind? Well, he had, he had the kind of blessing in mind that God had in mind. Not a blessing of his own making. He had in mind the kind of blessing that God had revealed. An eternal throne forever and ever for the good of the people. And not just the people, but also humankind. So David isn't just praying for his household here. He isn't just praying for his heritage here. He's praying for the household of God, the plan of God. It just happens to be going right through him and his offspring. Do you want what God wants more than you want what you want? It takes courage to pray for that. C.S. Lewis once said, my prayers don't change God, they change me. Are they changing you? Are your prayers changing over the years for the good, for the better? Do you pray for what he has promised? You realize that's a no-lose kind of praying. If I had told you yesterday that I had found the secret to answered prayer, and it's in the Bible, you'd go, really? That's exciting. Tell me what it is. And I do actually have the secret to answered prayer from the Bible. We pray for what God has already promised, and he will bring it to pass. We don't know the timing, we don't know the way, but we can pray with that kind of confidence and excitement because he's eager to answer prayer and he tells us what things we should pray for. Jesus taught us what things we should pray for and remarkably, it's very similar to what David prayed here. You see what David prayed here? For God's name to be magnified, for the kingdom to come essentially and for his people to be blessed that is provided for, kept from evil, made holy. And Jesus said, here's how you pray, guys. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy, make holy your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let the word of God be your guide in prayer. Let the word of God fill your prayers. When you don't know what to pray, read some Bible and talk to God about the very things he has said in his word. Doesn't David simply show us that? I mean, do you see how relentless David is in tying his requests back into what God promised? You might want to circle these things in your Bible. Like verse 25, confirm your word. 
do as you have spoken. Or verse 26, he reminds God of what he has been saying. Verse 27, you made this revelation to your servant. Verse 28, your words are true. It's what you have promised. In verse 29, it's you have spoken. God's word filled his prayer. It was the basis for him praying. Revelation and response. God speaks, we respond. He initiates, we respond with humble praise and then courageous prayers. There's one last thing for us to deal with this morning. I hope I can do it justice, squeezing it in at the end of the sermon. But it's back at the beginning of our passage. It's small, it might seem insignificant, but it's massively important. In verse 18, David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, when I first read this passage a few weeks ago in view of preaching it, I thought, that'll preach. He went in and sat before the Lord. This is be still and know that I am God. He sat before the Lord. We all need quiet time. You know, David here, he worships in private so well. And what a model and example he is for us, I, th- I thought. But David is not an example for us here in this instance because he's doing something that's not just common for the saints of the Old Testament. He went in and sat before the Lord. He went into the tent in front of the ark of God alone and he sat before the Lord. This was the business of priests. And David wasn't a priest, he was a king. What business does he have coming into the tabernacle before the ark of God? And not just standing, but sitting. No priest sat in the tent. There was work to do, and then you got out. This was scary business. Plenty of people had died in fooling around with the worship of God in his intimate presence like this. There was no chair in there. No priest had sat there before. And this king comes in and he sits before the Lord in his temple. Who is he to do this? Well, here's one of those things where we get a little window of something that's to come because David is showing us here that he's not just a king. He is a son of God, a type of a son of God. He's a priest king. Remember back in chapter 6 when David danced before the ark, he made sacrifices, he gave thanksgiving, he did all kinds of priestly things. He was even wearing the priestly ephod. What's up with that? What's he doing in that outfit? He's the king. But he's something, he's a hint of something to come where these things come together in one. He's a priest king. We'll see later on, he's also a prophet, priest, king. And here David shows us the boldness to go in behind the veil, into the presence of God, and to sit down. As his greater son would do a thousand years later, as Hebrews tells us, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
He goes on to say, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, now we can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, which was torn in two. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith we can draw near into the very presence of God. In fact, we're there now if we're in Christ. He is here. We are before him because of Christ, only because of him. But now in him, we can enter. We have entered. We can enter boldly. We can say to him that he is great and greatly to be praised. Let's pray for his help. Lord, help us to give you great praise. Help us to stand in awe of who you are. Help us more and more to pray like this, that you're our Father in heaven and we want your name to be magnified. We want your kingdom to come. We believe it has come. We believe it is coming. We believe that Jesus will come finally again at the last hour, the last day, and your kingdom will be here. Your will will be done completely on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for more of that even now. And we say with David, who are we? Who are we that you have brought us thus far? Lord, who can, who can count your blessings? What more can we say to you? What more can you say to us than what you have said? Help us to know it, to read it, to think on it, to ponder it, marvel at it, to praise it back to you in this life and in the age to come, to tell you and to sing that you are a great God and our great God. For your namesake, Lord Jesus, we pray all this. Amen.